Well, early on in this new year of 2023, most of us have many worries on our minds. And partly that is because, to use the words of the old Chinese curse, we live in interesting times. And so at the beginning of the new year, we fear what is going to happen to our society this year. We fear what will happen to the church. What is going to happen to our families? What could be lurking around the corner for ourselves? And so with those fears for the year in mind, would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8 from verse 11? I hope when I say Isaiah, you can translate. (laughs) I just wanted you to know how to say it properly. (laughs) Isaiah 8 from verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. What we see here is that when, verse 13, you fear the Lord of hosts, then, verse 12, you will not fear what others fear. In other words, the fear of the Lord is the antidote to our anxieties. It is the way to honor him and not to walk in the way of this people, the unbelievers around. Friends, the fear of the Lord is precisely what we need this new year. Now, we will see in a moment how the fear of the Lord soothes our worries and anxieties And we will see how we can grow in this fear. But first, what is this fear of the Lord? Now, the fear of God is a much misunderstood, uh, much maligned, and therefore, understandably, much ignored doctrine of Scripture. It comes up a lot in Scripture, and yet it can be confusing. For in Scripture, is fear a good thing or a bad thing? For many times, Scripture clearly views fear as a bad thing from which Christ came to rescue us. The Apostle John writes, 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Indeed, the most frequent command in Scripture is, do not be afraid. And yet... Again and again in Scripture, we are called to fear. And strangely, we are called to fear God. Probably the verse that comes to many minds quickest here will be Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all that can leave us rather confused. Because on the one hand, we're told that Christ frees us from fear, 
And on the other, we're told we ought to fear and fear God, no less. And it can leave us wishing that the fear of God was not so prominent a theme in Scripture. Because we think we've got quite enough fears without adding any more, thank you very much. And fear just sounds so negative to us. Fearing God doesn't seem to square, obviously, in our minds with the God of love and grace that we meet in the gospel. Why would a God worth loving want to be feared? And so fear and love can feel like the two different languages of different Christian camps, different theologies perhaps. And so you can have some Christians who always talk about the love and grace of God and never speak of the fear of God. And some others seem to be angered by that and want to emphasize how we must remember that we are also to be afraid of God, leaving us quite confused, thinking, so is the fear of God like cold water on my love for God? Leaving us thinking, well, if I have to fear God, it seems like this fear is the theological equivalent of having to eat up your greens. Oh dear. Yes, to fulfill all righteousness, we're going to have to do it. So let's be clear. The fear of God which Scripture commends and which the gospel gives is, in fact, the opposite of being afraid of God. For in Scripture, you need to know there are two basic types of fear. There is a fear of God which is good and desirable, and a fear of God which is not. So, there is a sinful fear of God which is not what Isaiah is talking about. There is a sinful fear of God. The sinful fear of God is the sort of fear James speaks of when he tells us of the demons who believe and shudder. This is the sinful fear is the sort of fear Adam had when he sinned and hid from God. A sinful fear drives you away from God. That's the fear of the unbeliever who hates God, who dreads the thought of there being a judge in heaven, who fears the light of holiness, who shudders at the thought of being exposed as a sinner. And so runs from God. But that is very different to the fear of the Lord Isaiah is speaking of, which Scripture commends. To see the difference between them, you could come with me if you want to Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, we see these two fears. We see two quite different fears. In Exodus 20, the people of Israel have gathered to Mount Sinai. And the people are scared of the thunder and the lightning. They hear the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses says, listen carefully, Do not fear, for the Lord has come to test you that the fear of God may be upon you, that you may not sin. Do not fear. The Lord has come to test you that the fear of God might be upon you. So, in other words, those who have the right fear of the Lord will not be afraid of God as they were. So, what is this fear of the Lord? 
To start with, let's be very clear, this is not just an Old Testament sort of worship. The fear of God is quite specifically a blessing of the new covenant. So you might want to come with me to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32, where he's talking of the new covenant. And in Jeremiah 32, the Lord says, I'm going to dive in, Jeremiah 32, verse 39. The Lord says, I will make with them, my people, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Okay, what does that fear mean? What is this fear that he will put in our hearts? Is this simply the fear of what he might do if we turn away from him? No. In Jeremiah 33, the Lord goes on. Let's go from verse 8. Jeremiah 33, verse 8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. And hear hear this. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide. You see, this is not a fear of punishment. Quite the opposite, in Jeremiah 33, the Lord has reeled off a catalogue of pure blessing. The Lord utters here not one word of threat, only promise after promise of pure grace. He would cleanse them, forgive them, do great good for them, and they fear and tremble precisely because of all the good he does for them. Here is not a fear that stands on the flip side of the grace and goodness of God. This is the sort of fear Hosea spoke of when he prophesied how the children of Israel shall return to the Lord their God and to David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness. It is a fear to the Lord, not running away from, but running to Him. A fear to the Lord and to His goodness. And ultimately, if we skip on a couple of chapters in Isaiah, we see the fear of the Lord, which believers are to enjoy, ultimately is a sharing in Jesus' own filial, sonly fear. Believers, we do not merely marvel at God's transcendence, at his transcendent magnificence, though we do do that. You see, when Christians speak of the fear of the Lord, they often reduce it to mean only an awe, respect, reverence we have for God as the transcendent creator. And yes, there is that, but there is more, much more, because we do not simply know God as creator. The creator has become our redeemer. In Christ, He has given us the right to be the children of God, and therefore the right fear of Him fears Him as our Father. It shares the Son's own filial, sonly, fearful 
delight in his father. Would you come with me to Isaiah 11? Just flick over the page to see this. In Isaiah 11, enter this situation of great turmoil and anxiety for the people of Israel. The Lord promises that from the hacked down family tree of David, one will come from the stump, from the root of David's family, from Jesse, the Spirit-anointed Messiah. And let's read the description, Isaiah 11 from verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, and listen to this, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Do you see, it is not as if Christ, the Son, loves God, has joy in God, but finds, unfortunately, to fulfill all righteousness, he has to also fear God. Quite the opposite. The Spirit who rests on him is the spirit of the fear of the Lord, and his delight is in the fear of his Father. This filial fear is part of the Son's pleasurable adoration of his Father. Indeed, it is the very emotional extremity of that wonder. Really, the fear of God defines true love for God. It is love for God as God. And that is why the fear of God and love of God are often put in parallel in Scripture. For example, Psalm 145, verse 19 He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Verse 20, in parallel, the Lord preserves all those who love him. Those who fear him, those who love him. Take how Moses puts fear and love together in his presentation of the law. Familiar words to many of you in Deuteronomy 6. Moses says, now, this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. So what is it, this commandment, that will bring me to fear God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You see, that fear and love are so alike is not obvious to us. And I think it's because of how we bandy the word love around. So love we use in all sorts of situations. I I love sitting in a cozy armchair with a good book. I love having a good laugh with my friends. I love a good meal. And I can blithely assume that love for God is just more of the same. As if it means perhaps no more than a vague preference for something. You know, some enjoy surfing, I enjoy God. Love for each thing is different because love changes according to its object. Uh, Let me explain what I mean there. I I want to illustrate that by... I'm going to say three true statements. Each one is true, 
But as I say them together, I'm expecting you'll wince, though they're true. One, I love and have real affection for my Labrador. I love and have real affection for my wife. I love and have real affection for my God. Each is true. But hearing them put right together like that should make you jolt. Because you know there must be something terribly wrong if I mean exactly the same thing in each. You sincerely hope there's a difference. And there is. The love is different because the object is different. The living God is infinitely perfect, overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. And as such, our love for him is not right if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, fearful love. So in a sense then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of our love for God. You see, the word, one of the two words used for fear in the Old Testament is a word that carries very physical connotations about trembling, quaking, shaking. And it and it's used in both positive and negative situations. So the word for fear is, is always about an overwhelmed, trembling, weak need reaction to sometimes a good and sometimes a bad. So, I can tremble and go weak need and shake because I'm a soldier under fire and I'm terrified. In Scripture, fear is used in that situation of the fear of the Israelites as the Chaldeans come and they melt with fear as the Babylonians approach. What will they do to us? But the very same word can be used in a positive situation. I can go weak at the knees and shake and be overwhelmed and tremble. And I've done this watching my bride come down the aisle towards me. And I remember as a bridegroom seeing my bride come towards me, I was going weak at the knees in the face, not of something that scared me, but that something that overwhelmed me. It was beauty, love that overwhelmed me. And just so that word can be used in Isaiah 60, in that day your heart shall thrill and exult. Exult is often the translation used, but it's, it's the same fear, trembling word that's used. So the right fear of God is not the flip side to our love for God. It's not one side to our reaction to God. It is the overwhelmed extremity of our response to who God is. It's the fact that our love is not pallid, insipid. Our love and joy and wonder at him is an overwhelmed thing because of how overwhelming he is in all his ways. And so it is not simply that we love God for his mercy and we fear him for his holiness... That would be a lopsided fear of God. We also love him for his holiness. And we tremble at the magnificence of his mercy. True fear of God is love for God 
defined. And so the biblical theme of the fear of God shows us the sort of love that is fitting for him. It shows God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. He does not show a vague preference for his bride. To encounter the living Christ means we cannot contain ourselves. He is not a truth to be known unaffectedly. He's not a good to be received listlessly. Seen clearly the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake, to rejoice and tremble. To fear the Lord is to be more alive. It is for our love, joy, wonder, worship of God to be more acute, more affecting. For when we rejoice in God so intensely that we quake and tremble, then we're being most heavenly like the angels who fall on their faces in wonder. And there is a particular challenge here for those of us who love study, who love theology. Because all too easy our biblical, our theological studies become exercises in puffing ourselves up and lording it over others with our knowledge. And so, friends who love theology and study, remember this. There is no true knowledge of him where there is no fear of him. Solomon said, Proverbs 1 verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Any Knowledge of God that is devoid of this fear is blind, barren. The living God is so wonderful. He is not truly known where he is not truly adored. So, friends, At the beginning of this year, as we've begun to think about what the fear of God is, I'd like to ask you some questions about your fears before we see what the fear of God does to those fears. And you might want to write these questions down to consider them later. I'd like to ask you some questions to answer quietly and honestly yourself. What do your fears say about your priorities? What do they say about what you treasure? Because your fears are always associated with what you love. You fear losing what you love. Your fears are revealing. What do your fears say about where you are looking for security? And ask yourself these questions. Which do you fear more? Being sinful or being uncomfortable? Which do you fear more? Being a sinner or being exposed as a sinner before others? Which do you fear more, God or people?
Our fears are like an ECG reading, constantly telling us about the state of our own hearts. And so as we look at the fear of God, we need to be honest in seeing the fear of God is not a matter of outward show. As we look at the fear of God, we can mistake the fear of God for an outward performance done for others. Martin Luther said, the fear of God is not merely to fall upon your knees. A hypocrite and a robber can do that. And John Calvin added, he said, where there is great ostentation of ceremony, there is rarely sincerity of heart. When we all take such an effort to show each other our piety, it usually means it's a show. And that should give us pause because it would be all too easy for us to think, well, look at some forms of church worship. How devoid of real fear of God. How lacking in fear of God so many seem. And then as a solution, we simply lay down rules demanding some external performance that mimic true fear. As if that's going to be the total solution. Scripture presents the fear of God as being primarily an internal matter of the heart's inclinations. It describes the shape and scale of proper Christian desire. So Psalm 112 verse 1 reads, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Delights. In other words, the one who fears the Lord is not the one who grudgingly attempts obedience to God. The one who fears the Lord delights in him, delights in walking in his ways. In other words, fear is something that runs deeper than behavior. It is something in the very grain of the heart that drives behavior. So sinful fear is, is not merely a matter of sinful actions. Sinful fear hates God and therefore acts out sinfully. In contrast, a right fear loves God, cherishing him as a holy father and therefore has a sincere longing to walk in holiness. And so the fear of God is a huge biblical theme that stands as a theological guard dog, stopping us from thinking we are made for passionless performance or a vague preference for God or a detached knowledge of abstract truths. The fear of God backs us into the acknowledgement we are made to know God in such a way that our hearts quake, tremble at his beauty, his splendor, so that we are remade at the very deepest level. It shows that entering the life of Christ involves a transformation of our very affections and our hearts so that we begin to despise, not merely renounce, but despise the sins we once cherished and cherish the God we once despised. And that, my friends, is why we sing this morning. That's why we sing as Christians, because singing is such an appropriate expression of a right filial fear, the fear of children. 
Psalm 47, the sons of Korah cry, Clap your hands together, all you peoples. Shout to God with loud shouts of joy, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared. He's to be feared, so shout for joy. Exodus 15. In overwhelmed joy at the Lord's deliverance, Moses and the people sing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Majestic in holiness, fearful in glorious deeds, doing wonders. The fear of the Lord is the reason we sing. It's it's why Christianity is the most song-filled of all religions. Because we have the most to sing about. Christians instinctively want to express the affection behind their words of praise, to stir it up, knowing words spoken flatly will not do in service of this God. There's some background on what this fear of God is. Now, Isaiah 8 speaks into a situation where the people are anxious and shows them that this fear of God is the solution they need. And friends, in this our day of anxiety, like in Isaiah's day, when people all around us are fretful and scared, you need to know this. The fear of the Lord is the antidote for our anxieties. Now, airport pop psychology books will tell you something rather different. Sorry, that's British understatement. Rather different. The pop psychology books will tell you that the bulk of your anxieties come from building your self-worth on the opinion of others. And the solution is, you probably know it, love yourself more. Love yourself so much it doesn't matter what others say or think about you. If you can love yourself so much you can get through anything. In other words, treat the disease of narcissism with more narcissism. But that is precisely our problem, not the solution. More self-love, friends, more self-confidence, more trust in men will never ease your fears. Relief from anxious fears is for those who fear the Lord. And why is that? How is it that the fear of the Lord can free us from anxieties and our fear of man? Well, essentially, it acts like Aaron's staff, which swallowed up the staffs of the Egyptian magicians. As the fear of the Lord grows in us, it outgrows, eclipses, swallows up, consumes your other fears. And so, the Lord could advise Isaiah, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the solution, the Lord of hosts, him honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. When the fear of the Lord becomes more central shapes your perspective, other fears will subside and take their right place under that proper perspective. You see something similar when Joshua speaks to the Israelites just before going into Canaan and they're terrified of these mighty Canaanites. And Joshua says, 
Do not fear the people of the land. They are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them. For the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And Jesus offers very similar counsel in the Sermon on the Mount. In telling his disciples not to worry, he gets them to look away from their own worries to the kingdom of God. So in Matthew 6, he says, Therefore, again this repeated command, do not be anxious. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, in that, Jesus is not simply distracting his disciples from their worries, a bit like a parent shaking a toy before a toddler to try to stop them thinking about what's annoyed them. No, what Jesus is doing is reorienting their perspective. Because our fears are like a blinding, disorienting fog that mean we cannot see outside of them. You know this when you see a friend who is so stressed out, all they can see is their worries. They've lost all sense of perspective, and they just cannot see beyond the thing or the things that are stressing them out. And because you're not in their situation, you can see how unreasonable they've become. But you never see it when it's you in that situation. So Jesus puts God and his kingdom as the sun in the sky of their perspective. Not only above everything, but enlightening everything, driving away that blinding fog of anxiety. With that perspective, the anxieties can't be all-consuming. Here, friends, is a truth for every Christian who needs the strength to rise above their anxieties or who needs the strength to pursue a righteous but unpopular course. The fear of the Lord is the only fear that imparts strength. And the strength this fear gives, quite uniquely, is a heavenly strength. It is a humble, gentle strength. Unlike demonic aggressive, vicious, unthinking, unfeeling strength. The strength the fear of the Lord gives is heavenly, humble. Because those who fear God are simultaneously humbled by his beauty and magnificence and strengthened at the same time by him. They are kept gentle, preserved from being overbearing in their strength. The reality is everyone in here temperamentally inclines one way or the other. So some of us are natural rhinos. And like a rhino, you are strong, thick-skinned, but all your friends will say, you're not very gentle. Others are more like deer. You're very sweet, gentle, but nervous, flighty. 
the fear of the Lord corrects and beautifies both temperaments. Giving believers a gentle strength. So if you're a deer, very prone, everyone calls you so sweet and kind, but you're very prone to anxiety. The fear of the Lord will give you a strength you do not have in yourself. And if you're a rhino, the fear of the Lord will give you a gentleness in your strength. For the fear of the Lord makes us like Christ, simultaneously lamb-like and lion-like. That's unnatural. It's heavenly. And church history testifies to how the fear of God can mold such believers. I think particularly of John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon, who both confessed that naturally their temperaments made them timid, fearful. John Calvin was a bookish young man. Charles Spurgeon, quite similar. They went naturally. Spurgeon talked about how uninclined he was to sport because he was just a timid sort. But as they grew in the fear of the Lord, they became lamb-like lions in the cause of the gospel. You know, I, I flew in here from Oxford where I live, and I love to pass by a little cobble of stones in the center of Broad Street, Oxford, and there's a, a cross in the cobbles of different color, color stones, which was where the great preacher Hugh Latimer and two others was burned to death with an extraordinary cheer and courage for preaching the all-sufficiency of Christ as a Savior. And a few years before, he explained what it was that strengthened him. A few years before he was martyred, he was due to preach before King Henry VIII, You may not know many of the kings and queens of England, but King Henry VIII might be a more familiar one to you. King Henry VIII was a fearsome king of many wives, many mistresses, hot temper, zero tolerance. You were a brave woman to marry Henry VIII because you had a one in three chance of being killed. Hugh Latimer decided to preach on the text, Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And before the king, he held back nothing. He spoke plainly about what God's word says concerning the sins of lust. And when he was done, the king told him, next Sunday when you preach before me, you will apologize. And you will preach in such a, word, such, such a way that you will eat your words this week. Latimer thanked the king and left. And the next Sunday, he stood in the pulpit and said, Hugh Latimer, thou art this day to preach before the high and mighty Prince Henry, King of Great Britain and France. An Englishman loves to hear him called King of Great Britain and France. (laughs) If thou sayest one single word that displeases his majesty, he will take thy head off. Therefore, mind what thou art at. But then he said, Hugh Latimer, thou art this day to preach before the Lord God Almighty, who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. Therefore, tell the king the truth outright. And he did, with no apology. And amazingly, The king did not take his head off. 
but respected him for it. Hugh Latimer feared God more than he feared men. Fear him, ye saints, and you will have nothing else to fear. So if this fear is the antidote to our anxieties, if this fear is the strength we need, if letting him be your fear means you will not fear what they fear, how do you grow in this fear of the Lord? Because we want to grow in this fear. How? There is one verse that puts it most simply. And it's a very strange verse. It reads very unexpectedly. It's Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's not what you expect at all. You expect it to be with you there is punishment that you may be feared. Or with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved or thanked. But it says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Because forgiveness is the best, most fertile soil for growing a right fear of God. Without God's great redemption, without his forgiveness of our sins, We could never approach him. We wouldn't want to approach him. Without the cross, God would remain a dreadful judge from whom we'd want to run. And this is precisely why, I wonder if this is someone here, so many Christians, they lurch between The spiritual highs of a Sunday and the spiritual sulks of a Monday. Where they crawl away from God in guilt. Because they forget his redemption. They forget the cross. It is divine forgiveness. It is our justification by faith alone. By his grace and kindness alone that turns our natural loathing of God, a horror of Him, into the fearful, trembling adoration of beloved children. For at the cross we see most deeply the kindness, the mercy of God to us. And that causes us to go weak with wonder, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he said, Oh, that a good, that a great God should be a good God. A good God to an unworthy and undeserving, to a people who constantly provoke the eyes of his glory, that would make us tremble. Oh, that a great God should be a good God. And Bunyan explained brilliantly how when you come to the cross, placing your faith in Christ as your Savior and Lord, then at the cross, sins are forgiven. Guilt is canceled. And yet at the cross, you realize in a way you never realized before just how sinful you are if that's what it takes to cancel your guilt. And so Bunyan said, if God shall come to you and visit you with forgiveness of sins, that visit will remove the guilt, but it will increase your sense, your appreciation of your filthiness. And the sense of this, that God has forgiven a guilty sinner, will make you both rejoice and tremble. 
And then he said, oh, the blessed confusion that will cover your face. Do you know that blessed confusion? It's a blessed confusion made of sweet tears in which God's grace and kindness shown you in the cross makes you weep at your wickedness. And you simultaneously repent and rejoice. And his mercy shows up the extent of your wickedness, and your wickedness then just shows up how deep his grace is, leading to a deeper, more fearfully happy adoration of the Savior. So friends, if you would have him be your fear, if you would, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 7, Bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord, for this is the completion of holiness. Stay close to the cross. The biblical theme of the fear of God finds its center ground and fountain in the central moment of the biblical story, the cross of Jesus Christ. For there, on the cross, until we see him in heaven, there is the clearest window into the righteous, compassionate heart of God blazing with love and mercy. When you contemplate the cross... then you taste what it is like in heaven. In heaven, there will be nothing for you to be afraid of anymore. In heaven, the saints will be caught up into God's own fearful happiness and exaltation in His glory. In heaven, our eternal joy will consist precisely in this fear of God, rejoicing and marveling so entirely that like the angels, we burn and wonder and fall on our faces in adoration before him. The hymn writer F.W. Faber put it like this. He said, And Father... When to us in heaven thou shalt thy face unveil, then, more than ever, will our souls before thy goodness quail. Our blessedness will be to bear the sight of thee so near, and thus eternal love will be but the ecstasy of fear. Friends, the fear of the Lord is the ultimate affection. It is the very aroma of heaven. It is the affection that expels our sinful anxieties, our sinful fears. It is the affection that will expel your spiritual lethargy when you fear him You come more alive to him. To grow in this sweet and quaking wonder at God is to taste heaven now. For friends, in heaven, there there will be nothing to be afraid of anymore. And we who trust Jesus will rejoice and tremble and be filled with that fearful adoration of such a glorious God. And in the fear of God, we can taste that even now. Let's pray.
Oh, our Father, when we see your holy love and your mercy blazoned out of the cross, when we see the forgiveness to be found by sinners, wretched sinners there, because of free mercy, it dumbfounds us. Help us in all our busyness to contemplate Jesus Christ and Him crucified, to come to Him so that with the psalmist we might say, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, so that we might say to our souls, do not fear what they fear, let Him be your fear, so that we are more heavenly and cry Shout to God with loud shouts of joy, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared. In Jesus' sweet, glorious, and strong name we pray it. Amen.